Tucker Eber Group's podcast series, Talk Retail to Me, where we offer insights and realistic advice from experts in the retail and consumer brands industries. If you're new to Parker Avery and this podcast, we are a leading retail and consumer goods consulting firm with over 600 years of collective experience, both as consultants as well as leadership positions in the industry. Our firm uniquely combines deep industry experience with consulting expertise and world-class talent to deliver meaningful results. Our approach allows us to build successful, long-term relationships with some of the most recognizable retail and consumer brands in the world. If you're interested in learning more about the Park Ravery Group, we invite you to visit parkravery.com. Today, I am handing the microphone over to Senior Manager Heidi Census, who will be hosting Principal Marty Anderson and Senior Manager Luann Villasor to discuss assortment planning. We've seen tremendous interest in our clients for improving their assortment planning capabilities, not only bringing in new technology, but also revamping business processes and their organizations to ensure these retailers are providing compelling assortments that drive both customer traffic and bottom line profit. Luann and Marty recently completed a major assortment planning system selection and implementation for a large home decor retailer, and the three experts will provide their perspectives on the subject. Hey guys, it's so good to see you. How are you doing? Good morning. Doing great. great. Good, good. So Marty, can you tell us a little bit about the background of the project for this particular client that Trisha was referring to? What led them up to having to do an assortment planning project? From what were they transitioning? What was the compelling need for them to embrace this at this time? Sure, um, we were working with kind of a mid-tier big box retail chain, um, specializing in home decor products primarily, large number of SKUs, um, most of them long-term life cycles. They currently do not have, or did not have rather, a assortment planning process. They had some components of assortment planning that were in some Excel sheets that were kind of inconsistent, I would say, from office to office, and but no real true assortment planning process to speak of, and so didn't have a lot of background in that space. They did have item planning, however, but it was in a little bit more of a cumbersome Excel-based tool set, which sometimes um, could get a little unstable and certainly took a very long time to load and, and wasn't connected to data. And so they were looking to kind of pull all of that together, get it in one space, learn about assortment planning, really improving their assortments. Um, they weren't tiering products. They didn't have any concept of clustering. They pretty much sent all products to all doors. And so they were in a scenario where you know, their large stores were running out of goods and some of their smaller stores were kind of piling up. And so they understood the value and how they wanted to really focus in assortment to both um, refine how they were assorting that mix by location. And also they wanted to get better at determining which products and, and how much SKU depth they needed to buy because they didn't really have a good way to determine even quantity of SKUs in, in their total assortment. So um, they were coming from not a lot into full-fledged assortment, so it was very <laughs> transitional for this particular client. It, it was quite a big change for them, so it, it was a really big step. Do you find, though, that that is an unusual situation amongst retailers, that they have a homegrown or an Excel-based solution and then try to transition to a more formal assortment planning process? I think you're right. I, I, I think most of 
the experiences I've had in assortment leading up to this have been coming from maybe uh, a more generic, like Excel-based form, like you say, where they have some sort of assortment planning process, um, and they're kind of wanting to get into a more advanced version of that and a more systemic database-driven um, version of that. I think that's probably pretty accurate. So, yeah, this was a little bit more on the extreme side of, of really, <laughs> but you know, it was an, a company who had gone through a lot of growth on a, of a very short period of time too. So, okay. Great. So, Luann, I'm going to hand the mic over to you for a moment. Were there any unique requirements that this client had that made it into the implementation? We did have an interesting scenario come up. Um, this was more after the training when we were working one-on-one -on -one with the planners and buyers um, in some focus workshops. And there was an interesting situation where we, where they only had select SKUs were allowed to be sent to a particular state. So. For example, in the lighting sub-department, um, there's a requirement to have light bulbs included. And so these were separate SKUs entirely, you know, within their assortment. And so what we did without going into a ton of detail, basically through a combination of clustering and some SKU attribution, we were able to address this challenge and establish like a pretty solid assortment planning approach that they could follow within this sub-department. And it really stimulated that partnership between the planner and buyer and working together to try to figure this out. So yeah, it was it was actually kind of fun to to try to sit there and work with them and go through, hey, you know, here's what we need to do and how we need to look at your assortment, you know, to establish, you know, what's being sent to what clusters. You bring up a really good point that any system implementation, whether it's assortment planning or anything else, is that a lot of it's theoretical until you get into user acceptance testing or training, at which point you realize you may have missed a key requirement because someone just hadn't thought of it. So that point about the, the light bulbs that you have to continue to evolve, it's not once and done. I sign off on the requirements, we never touch it again, and we're stuck with whatever we have once we go live. I think that's an excellent point. You mentioned this concept of product attributing to kit the light bulbs with the light fixtures. Were there any other attributes that they used to build the assortment? And this goes out to either of you. I mean, honestly, attribution <laughs> plays a huge and critical part in assortment planning. And before this project was actually started, the design piece of it, there was a project effort specifically, you know, company-wide to clean up and define and determine which attributes were important uh, or that would be the most used within the assortment planning project. So, you know, with that said, though, several more as we were working with the users and going through these workshops and training, more situations kind of came to light. And we ended up adding additional attributes to the system to assist in planning, you know, those particular sub-departments. You know, it was, I think yeah. attribution is, is so critical. And we did have to go, and this, and this particular client had very inconsistent use of attribution. And so I think it also goes to, for any any potential clients looking at assortment planning, data quality comes up a lot in a lot of our projects, not even just assortment planning. I would say that foundational data quality is very key um, depending on, so understanding 
what you're trying to accomplish and what that future state needs to look like and what's going to drive your decisions and being able to analyze attribution of products to understand what mix should look like. We did have at the very beginning of the project, like Luann said, a, an in-depth review of here are all the attributes you have and here are the ones you're actually using. And then here are the ones you're actually using consistently. And so there was an effort to go back and even back tag existing items to bring them kind of up to standard and make sure everything that existed was currently tagged and then also set a new standard of requirement. Um, some attributes were deemed as required and, and for all new item setups that weren't set that way in the past to make sure that that data quality was maintained over time coming in. And I think Luann also brought up another very good point about adding additional attributes based on scenarios. So like where you were talking earlier about requirements and what we thought we got into some use case scenarios and thinking, well, do we need to really change configuration or do we just, could we do that through attribution? And so it opened up additional conversations now that we had already kind of opened up that world of attribution can do a lot of things for you if you use it properly and correctly. You don't want to overcomplicate your process or your solution. Um, find the simplest row that provides the most amount of value. And sometimes the answer is attribution. That is also an excellent point because this is a rabbit hole that you can easily go down where a client may say, well, I need 74 attributes to be able to create a proper assortment. Um, I know when I was a planner several years ago, we had different attributes for footwear, different attributes for handbags, you know, heel height versus material. Is it a precious material or is it cloth? Um, what kind of guidance would you provide other retailers if they're going down the path of doing assortment planning as to how do you contain the number of attributes that you include to make a meaningful assortment? Honestly, it's limited to the ones that are going to be used for decision making. There are a lot of attributes and, and they're all important to some degree, particularly, you know, in the, in the new world of online shopping because you want to be able to filter and some attributes are there just to enhance a customer experience from a filtering standpoint. And I always advise my clients to be really thoughtful about what are the one to two or to three max most important decision making attributes that a customer is going to come in. You know, if it's a piece of furniture, is it material? Do they want wood, metal? What is that fabrication if it's uh, in a textile or you know, is it that they're looking for wool? Is it is it silhouette? You know, what are the most important? Because the biggest majority of your decision making are probably going to be contained in those one to three, even though there might be 10 associated or 20 associated with that product that are meaningful at some point in its life cycle or, or some some facet of that customer experience. The decision making point and how you're really going to be driving the business or, or what is more statistically valid is contained in probably anywhere from one to three. And so don't drive too deep in that rabbit hole. Think of the ones that are really gonna drive your decision. What you're really gonna sort around, is it size, is it fabrication, is it shape? Um, what are the major ones? And we find more success. If you can focus and get those top one to three right, you're probably good. You're, you're gonna make really good decisions. Absolutely fantastic, thank you so much. You mentioned data quality. A lot of times we go into clients and they're like, oh yeah, my, my data is okay. We're using it for reports and stuff like that. And Kel surprise, you find out, hey, maybe it's not so good. Were there any other surprises or learnings that you found on the way going through the assortment planning program that would help other retailers as they're trying to make decisions? I mean, basically I feel there were several kind of aha moments for some of the users regarding their plan. 
for instance, like the buyer realizing that they don't have enough budget to support the SKUs they want to buy. You know, so it got to that point where that level of visibility was new to them. And this prompted more of that collaboration and conversation between the planners and buyers, like going back and saying, hey, I think I need more money in this area, or maybe I have too much money in another. So, oh, um, really? A buyer yes. doesn't have enough money to buy their assortment? That's new. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It is. And I think, yeah, that was that was a, a really key learning. And I think, you know, as we talked earlier, could be different in, in its magnitude. A company who never had an assortment planning tool to kind of offset, that there were a lot of early learnings about, oh, wow, this, this can actually kind of be pushed back into our planning process. And how do we look at our financial planning process and make it more accurate? Because now we're seeing the real impacts and we actually have math and statistics being applied to those numbers to kind of split that out and build out an assortment. I'm learning so many things about what SKU count I can really afford versus before. It also pushed in some learnings about calendarization of when things have to be kind of due and to what level of completeness. Um, and, you know, usually when you certainly when you're talking to finance people they like to wait till the very last minute to commit to a number. Whereas when you're in merchandising, you have to commit pretty far out, right? And so it's it's about, okay, where does that calendarization of even building financial plans and budgets have to exist to provide the buyer with a good comprehensive plan um, that's really tied to their strategy? And I would say, with that in mind, another part of our process leading into assortment planning with this client was setting up kind of that merchandise strategy component of their Indian process to making sure that they have an understanding before they even get into whether it's financial planning and assortment to make sure they understand growth, maintain, decline categories, where they're meaning to put their budget and making sure all of those concepts are thought about when they're doing their financial plan. So less of these disconnects happen on the fly during that. But, and also about flexibility, understanding where are those hard balance points of assortment planning? You know, what level the assortment, whether that's at class, is it at department, is it at sub-department, what level is a hard reconciliation point versus where is that flexibility? You know, a buyer goes to market and I always tell my clients, like, you should feel free to balance between a subclass to another subclass within a class or within your classes to say a, a department level. Um, really understanding that assortment planning is really kind of a two-way street and it's a shared responsibility between that buying and planning group to say, we also have to go where the trends are and we don't want to stick to a number just because it was a budgeted number. Um, the buyer has an accountability to also um, look at what's being offered, um, where the quality lies, where she feels like the customer's decisions are moving to, you know, where those trends are really traveling, and then bring that feedback back and let it also inform in the other direction, the financial plan. And so it's kind of a push and a pull. And you wanna, you wanna make sure that that collaborative conversation is happening and that they really understand those reconciliation points and they're not all created equal. That is an absolutely great point because it brings up the question of which comes first, the assortment plan or the <laughs> merchandise financial plan, chicken or the egg? Um, there was one time when I was working, as I mentioned before, for a, a retailer as a planner, we had a budget for belts and we go to market, as Marty mentioned, you go into market and you see what's available and the collection had zero belts. It was all caftans and stuff. And we're like, okay, well, now where do you put the money? You put it into ready-to-wear. So you have to do that shift yes. and be okay with it because you just may not have the opportunity or there's a new category that's available that wasn't available before. You know, department stores may decide they want to start selling food products that they didn't sell. So there's always opportunities. You mentioned that this was a home goods retailer. 
and one of the things that they would have, I would guess, is a level of a balance between seasonal products and basics or replenishable or long life cycle products, seasonal being maybe holiday or summer or something like that. Was there a different approach to those different types of product families? Slightly. I mean, there, there was a slightly different approach. I mean, the, the overall assortment planning process was consistent across. However, you know, the main thing, we did actually spend time talking to them even before going into the system and training. We really talked about concepts and overall processes around um, seasonality or really what I would call life cycle. Understanding is that the one thing that you really have to have a concept of within your organization, and this can also go back to data quality and, and as attribution, is that concept of product life cycle and having an intended life cycle for a product, not just a reactive approach to when you're going to exit an item. But as you buy it, understanding, is this a four-month item? Is this a 10-month item? Is this a two-year item? You know, what, what is that? Is it basic? Is it fashion? Is it core? You know, what does that look like? Most of their products were long-term, but even within that, they still had three very distinct life cycles that they needed to be very cognizant of. And whether that's understanding an end date or a season code, there, there should be some attribution or, or date that can be fed in to really make those life cycles easily identifiable and managed to. And to your point, the most extreme versions were exactly what you're talking about, the holiday. They did have huge categories of holiday, such as Christmas, fall, or Easter. But even if you weren't in home decor, I would say you know swim, coats, there are a lot of categories that are extreme seasonal categories. And, it, and the main thing is understanding how much you're going to have brought in. You're probably going to have less flow. You still have to have an understanding of what does that reg price selling quantity look like and how do you buy to that, both from a skew count as well as a depth. It's, it's about that balance between breadth and depth and how long you're actually going to carry it on the floor to make sure. So we did have to vary it a little for those extremes, but overall the, the process was consistent. It was really about how do I manage breadth and depth in those extreme categories. So the finance team was mentioned earlier, and they like their numbers. And a lot of merchants, I know when I was a merchant, I didn't like math because it meant I couldn't buy as much as I really wanted to buy. When someone gave me an open to buy and said, you get this much money. When it comes to assortment planning, which oftentimes is just a range or you know the wedge that we often use as a term, there needs to be a way to develop and manage the accountability after the fact to define, was I successful in the range of products I offered? Did they set up in advance any way to define the success of creating an assortment prior to actually executing it? And did they measure it and have any level of accountability after the fact? And if they didn't, have you seen any successful retailers doing this in the past to say, yes, you had the right number of SKUs or no, you didn't. And financially it well. I think introducing a few measures like rate of sale is, is one that was a new introduction to them to understand both how to divvy out that existing budget to the appropriate SKU count and really to what Luann said earlier, that was one of the big aha learnings for them. They had not used that measure before and it's it was really about how many units am I going to sell per week per store. Um, it, it gave them a different perspective, and they weren't using it in their even daily reporting. And so it was one of those things where we talked about they're going to have to adopt that measure in their daily reporting because we're using it as a mechanism to divide your budget out to get a good SKU count target. And then how do we measure that as it's on the floor? Are we really selling to that? Is it a way to understand productivity of items? 
And, and I think that was a big learning for them is how do we measure the productivity of items in season to understand, you know, what's trending, but then how do we take those productivity measures and use them in a preseason standpoint to really divvy out that budget and be more intentional about it and say, this is what I would like to achieve in these products. And then you have a, a consistent measure throughout to also then measure that success to say, did I achieve it? And then also, if you're making those reactive decisions in season, which you are always going to have to do, you can cut that off and say, no, it's not measuring up to what I really had budgeted it to. Let's go ahead and either mark that down or make a call on it. Let's turn off some of that flow and feed that into something else that is being more productive. So I would say that was one of the the measures that was most prominent. That was a a huge different Mm -hmm. way of looking at their business and measuring productivity. Um, both intentional and in season, that that was an adopted measure. Fantastic. So you mentioned, Marty, that the business is booming. Um, either Marty or Luann, has the pandemic and people spending a lot more time at home impacted how they choose to assort their products? Thinking, you know, first of all, e-commerce being a bigger part of the market, buy online, pick up at the curb, and, you know, contactless delivery and all that, has that changed are they not putting as many things into the stores? Are they assorting differently as a result of people staying at home more? For sure. I, I think from a store planning process, it doesn't change the process so much, but certainly by product and what's trending and what, what turns off and what turns on has certainly changed a little bit with the pandemic and it, it continues to change actually. One of the biggest issues, you know, that we were certainly having, certainly working with a home decor is that, yeah, it was explosive growth. <laughs> Everyone's staying at home. The fashion industry has really kind of felt the brunt of that hit where people are in their yoga pants or whatever during the day because they're working from home and they don't maybe aren't spending as much on, you know, fancier clothes to go to the office. Um, but they are now stuck at home. And so they are buying regardless of what industry, whether it's department store, or in this case, a fully home decor store that category of business is booming across. And so it kind of ruined their history for the year of 2020, if you will, because when you're looking back and looking at historical indicators to know how to plan your business, when the pandemic hit, there was a complete bottom out. You know, we had quarantine, stores were closed. And so there was this huge valley in their spring historical period of 2020 that was just it went to zero at one point and then kind of slowly grand up. And then in the fall, there was this explosive double digit growth. Like we're talking 40% growth year over year, which has now started leveling out and they're not experiencing quite that level of growth. So when they look back at that time period, they almost have to toss it out um, and really find a different way. Or another thing that some of our clients are leaning into um, that's becoming more and more critical is this advanced analytics, you know, looking at things if you have a forecasting solution, which is really dynamic and can be utilized to give you good trends. And some of the old school analytics weren't good at those kind of real volatile time periods. So it's even reimagining some of those to make sure that you have a way to either correct that history, look at it differently. Um, But yeah, product categories were explosive and different and they had to sort them differently, but now they're starting to level out and people are trying to understand how long does this growth carry? What does that look like? Where does it stabilize? And analytics is a great way to do that. Marty, you're talking about demand forecasting and making sure that you uh, account for unexpected spikes or valleys in demand. Are you referring to demand intelligence? 
Yes, um, Parker, the Parker Energy Group just deployed a new demand intelligence platform that is actually very good at um, interpreting volatile um, demand signals into to future demand. So yeah, we are now very well positioned to further support our clients in this category. So absolutely. As we have more AI, ML, you know, the catchwords of the current retail environment, how do you apply that information and those learnings to creating an assortment plan? Usually there's two places that it impacts. The first one obviously would be if, if you have that signal to feed that into your financial planning process to really kind of help that inform your budgets um, by category across your product hierarchy so that when those budgets come into the assortment planning tool, they're kind of already kind of set based on, on where that predictive analytic is kind of driving you. And that's the, that's the first most important place to kind of set the stage for that budget. And then, of course, as you're coming out of assortment planning into item planning, which, which is kind of the back end of the process, uh, having that in-season analytic also being fed into item to kind of predict those week-to-week -week trajectories to see where you need to like buy back in. You might need reorders or you might want to cut something off earlier or something like that. So it's really kind of on the front end and the back end, feeding in and feeding out. Thank you. So for our last topic, this is something I'm very passionate about. It's very near and dear to my heart and it has to do with store clustering. So <laughs> which is a topic that can be very divisive amongst different people. Um, what, at the client that we've been talking about, did they have a specific methodology they used to group stores? Since it was a home store, it's not driven by things like coats or swimwear, but you know, weight of blankets or something may have had an impact or customer demographics. How did they group their stores in order to create their assortments? Well, initially they did not tier stores, and that was one of the things they wanted to really focus in on is tiering and clustering. Um, you know, they picked a solution set that came with a couple of different uh, clustering algorithms, more of a breakpoint algorithm, and then an optimized algorithm that uses more of an analytic centroid perspective to assort their stores. And, and then of course, you know, you have the option of subclustering with store attribution as well, we kind of pulled back on that one a little bit just to kind of go in with a crawl, walk, run, which I, I would advise for any company who's maybe not doing a lot of advanced clustering just yet. And it depends on the level that you're doing, but um, really looking at the intention of your stores, you know, some companies may have location planning that they can use to feed and inform clustering. Uh, if you don't, you certainly have actuals or intention. Um, it could be the forecast analytic that we talked about again, about looking at what you're expecting each store to sell within a category of goods. And you can use those sales because you really want to buy to your sales. If, if I feel like I'm going to have a potential of, of certain selling in this category by this store, I, I want to build a budget around that and make sure I buy to that. So clustering, I would say number one is looking at those sales trajectories. And I would refine that even further to say reg price selling. Um, you don't necessarily want to buy into clearance because that could be an indicator of maybe you didn't assort well the last time around and you don't want to buy back into overstocks. So you really want to really focus on that regular price and promotional selling that you had that was very profitable and really kind of build your clusters and assortments around that. Other things can come into play too, you know, margin and profitability, but I think 
if it depends on how you're refining that data in. If you're refining the data feed in to only include regular or promotional price selling, that can simplify your process because you don't have to add in another metric like margin necessarily because you're looking at a very consistent margin component already within the sales that you're using to do the clustering. Otherwise, you may want to use uh, another metric if you can't refine the data coming in. You may want a, a secondary metric like margin or turn or something like that. So Marty, what, what you're talking about is a really great example of how the crawl, walk, run approach where it's easy, it's explainable, I'm grouping my stores based on a finance metric. But as we look forward to advanced assortment planning and advanced store clustering, where do you think the world can be going when we start thinking about looking at you know, metro regions where people have smaller spaces or um, so they can't have the huge KitchenAid mixer or they can't have a huge sofa or you know, these are older people, their house is already established, they, don't need, they just need towels or something. And that's just a home example. Where do you think clustering should be going? And this also goes to Luann, where do you think clustering should be going? in the future to go beyond the sales and margin of days gone by? I think if it's gonna go beyond <laughs> sales and margin and what we have typically been doing, you know, whether it's the optimizer break point method or what have you, being prepared to address those space constraints because they need to be able to have that data at that particular level, whether it be at the subclass or sub department, whatever level you do that clustering and a lot of clients tend to not have, or they're not prepared to to actually feed that data into the system, you know, at those particular levels. They might have it at a much higher level, um, say department or, or what have you, but not at this lower level where they're actually doing a lot of the planning. And so what you get into is, you know, now it becomes this workhorse, you know, <laughs> and it becomes very, very mm -hmm. difficult to manage all those data pieces and it becomes a whole separate job. If they are going to do some more advanced pieces, they need to actually be ready to handle it. That's an excellent point. And it comes once again back to the data. While sales and margin may limit you to this is what happened before. So this is, I'm, I'm basically setting myself up to replicate the past as opposed to thinking about the future. Thinking about things like demographics, socioeconomics, and all those other kind of factors, those are all great in theory. But if you don't have that assigned at a location level to say, you know, this particular drugstore has a clientele that is in the 60 to 70 age range, or this particular um, kids store has a whole bunch of people who just had kids, so we should expect a spike in performance in the next five years. If you don't have access to that data, you still are limited to the clusters you can create based on the data that you have. So it's getting that not just product attribution right, but the store and the location level attributing right as well um, to make sure that you're addressing what is most important to make, as you mentioned, Marty, the best decisions you can make based on the information that you have. Marty, you were about to say something and I, I casually interrupted you. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say along those lines, where I would say advanced clustering was probably going to go a year or two ago, or five years ago, would be different maybe than now because of the changes in how we shop and how the customers and all the different channels that customers have to shop. And we get into this a lot, and it's about identifying 
true demand versus fulfillment. And it depends on how you're, and it goes, again, it all ties back to data quality and integrity and, and how you're really getting to that. And you were just talking about understanding that at, at such a granular level. Now that we're shipping from store, we're shipping from fulfillment, sometimes we're shipping from vendor, sometimes it's pick up at a particular store, understanding where the sale transacted versus where the original demand originated at are very different things. And I, I tell my clients a lot, like it's less important these days to have every product in every store available, but have every product available somewhere because it's so easy to get a product to the customer within a day even in, in, in the new environments that it's less critical to pinpoint every single variation of, a, of an assortment. And the one thing to note, and I, I, I spend a lot of time on this with my clients around clustering, is that it's easy to get beyond your capability very quickly in clustering when you start adding in location attributions or even, you know, as Luann was talking about, factors like space. When you start subdividing clusters, they expand exponentially. If you start with five volume clusters and you go to one attribute that has five values, now 25 clusters. And so I always caution my clients, don't go beyond what you can truly execute to and actually assort. Can you buy 25 truly unique assortments and can you manage that execution of those assortments? Some companies, yes. Other companies, no. And so it's not always the same answer everywhere, but just don't explode your analytic thinking around uh, clustering or tiering or assorting beyond what you can execute to. Keep it within your executable range. That actually stole my thunder because I was going okay. to ask. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I was going to ask on, ask you guys, what kind of guidance would you provide clients on limiting the number of clusters? Because like you said, Marty, you take and add one attribute and all of a sudden you go from five to 25, you take a third attribute, you're in the 75. One of my recent clients who was an apparel retailer who primarily was direct to consumer via catalog line, they had 15 stores. We ended up with five clusters in 15 stores <laughs> because of the way they wanted to segment the stores, which, sorry guys, it's, it's a little, that's a little crazy. What kind of guidance would you say is, and, and I think you kind of mentioned this, Marty, it's that to which you can execute the count to which you can execute. Right. And sometimes it depends on the category of business. Sometimes it depends on what the market availability, but I really sit down with the buyer and sometimes, you know, we get into these great ideas. Like you're talking like, Oh yeah, this is important and that's important. And I have this limited program for this stores and it all sounds hugely important. And then I sit down and we start looking at it and I say, do you realize that you put the exact same assortment across all five of these clusters? So did you need five variated clusters or could all of those be one cluster, right? Can you truly buy a completely different combination of products and, and be that specific? And then as you're allocating or, or managing that down to the actual store level and executing, is there a way to facilitate that and make sure that that stays pure because it's usually a different person doing that distribution? Is that going to be then connected to your assortment tool so that that forces that to happen? How do you make sure that that eligibility in, and some tool sets and some um, foundational data sets allow product eligibility, most do, um, how companies address that because the returns can be wildly different <laughs> and, um, you know, stores can get products they were never intended to originally have. But again, it comes back to, Focus on what is truly executable, not just what looks good on paper, because you'll spend a lot of extra hours just managing this 
beautiful paper vision that actually doesn't get executed. And then you don't understand why you're not getting those results that you thought you were getting. So make sure it's executable. Outstanding. So as we start to wrap up, I'm going to ask both of you for some of your final thoughts about assortment planning. And this is general guidance about what your experiences are and where you would guide our clients about the mysteries of assortment planning. For me, one of the things, because I've, I've been a buyer in the past, I've been a planner in the past, when business is tough, there's a tendency to want to throw everything you possibly can into every store and hope something sticks just to get the sales. And Marty, you you mentioned this, is it's that you don't have to have everything in every store. You just need to be able to make it accessible to your clients somehow. That it is someplace, if it's something that there's a desire for a client to purchase, it's somewhere in your network. So don't you don't need to tie up your inventory in a physical location where it sits and gets stale and needs to be dusted off from time to time. But you do, if it's something that someone will desire, need it in the network, whether it's in a DC, in a store across the country, or <laughs> in some cases, in a tractor trailer behind the physical buildings because you have too much stuff existing in the stores. So keep, keep it tailored, keep it nimble, keep it accessible. So, Luann, do you have any final thoughts about assortment planning and guidance that you'd like to provide to our listeners? I guess I just feel like I've seen and worked with clients that really want everything. They want all this attribution. They want all this location attribution. They want to be able to do everything under that umbrella. Well, I just say keep it simple. You know, try to keep it as simple as possible initially, just because when you're going through this process, there's a lot of you know, collaborations and figuring out whose role is doing what. And, and if you haven't had that kind of culture before, this isn't the time to kind of pile everything on, you know? <laughs> so trying to keep the process as simple as possible would probably be my advice. And then also another learning, just coming out of the pandemic piece of it, you know, we did a lot of things very, you know, that were virtual. So we did design, we did testing, we did training virtually. And that was really, really challenging. And so what I guess I would say is that when we actually ended up doing these focus workshops that were on site with the labs, um, with the users, it was refreshing to kind of see the users embrace that tool and go from being in those three weeks, uneasy and uncertain to feeling confident and empowered. So nothing beats that human to human contact and interaction. I think you brought up a very good point especially when someone's coming from an environment where maybe their legacy systems are really old and this is assortment planning becomes the shiny new object that clients start to think it's going to solve all their problems in this one magic system and solution. And that keeping it simple piece and providing guidance and keeping them on the path and funneling out requirements that there's not a magic button to doing this. You can't just hit a button and have it create an assortment for you. And you can't just keep layering on requirements and layering on functionality and expect it to be the perfect solution because uh, that's not going to happen. So keeping it simple is great advice, especially moving from Excel land to a formalized <laughs> yes, system. Yes, exactly. So Marty, what about your final thoughts? My final thoughts? You actually stole my thunder that time, so payback is <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say it's not a silver bullet. You know, some companies kind of what you were alluding to is they think I need a sort of planning that's going to fix it. That's going to create my strategy. 
And assortment planning is not where you build your strategy. Assortment planning, and, and I work a lot with my clients, assortment planning is a thought process that starts prior to financial planning. There's that merchandise strategy component that I thought talked about earlier. That has to happen, understanding where those grow, maintain, decline categories, store strategies, marketing strategies, whether it's the balance between basic and fashion or private brand to national brand. All of those conversations have to happen before you put pen and pencil to paper to even build out your financials, which is well before you actually build it into the assortment. Assortment planning is really meant to detail out that assortment and get it down to a more granular level and really start applying product assumptions to that strategy, right? And so assortment planning really starts way before the assortment tool happens. And I think that's the thing that companies don't often realize. And if you don't have those processes in place, and sometimes they are very simple processes, but they have to be in place, you'll end up doing more work than is required which brings me to my second point is that assortment planning is work. It, it's, you know, it's not a button that you push, uh, which some companies feel like, Oh, we put in a tool, push the button and get out the assortment. <laughs> it's not, it is more work. It isn't less work. So make sure that as you're looking through those in end processes, you're allowing for that workload to happen so that you don't get overwhelmed. And then I think tagging onto what you and Leon were just talking about, keeping that simple helps with that as well. Don't over construct it. I tell clients stay away from forced reconciliations. I don't like forced reconciliations and assortment because of the conversation we had earlier is you get to market and you have to be agile. So agility in your assortment approach is critical to make sure that the buyer isn't constrained and being forced into uh, a pattern or an avenue that isn't productive or isn't the right way to go and, and that it is a back and forth conversation between the financial planning portion and the creative portion of the actual assortment building. Keep it agile, keep it simple, and start your strategy well before planning starts. Well, I wanted to thank you both for your time today and for your very thoughtful insights that you provided. And to our listeners, I hope you learned a couple of things about assortment planning today, and we look forward to having you here another one of our podcasts. Thank you from the Parker Avery Group. So that wraps up today's episode. We hope you found value in the content and in the discussion. If you have any questions and would like to reach out, please feel free to visit our website at parkeravery.com. We also invite you to join our conversation on LinkedIn. Just search for the Parker Avery Group.